newest member of the teaching team here at Grace. Um, I joined uh, at the end of December uh, at Alex Cornett's request, and I thought, man, what an awesome opportunity to get to hang out with these godly men and women who uh, prepare these talks each week and who uh, dig into the scriptures and the applications and all that. And I thought, man, it would be awesome, you know, at some point down the road, months, years, uh, to maybe get up and talk and, you know, after I've had a chance to really glean a lot of information off these people. Um, as you can tell by where I'm standing now, that runway got cut way short <laughs> from what I thought it was going to be. Um, you know, I can't tell you how excited I am to be up here sharing with y'all uh, this morning. Um, so decades ago, there was a public service announcement that came on at 10 o'clock every night um, where they said, it's 10 p.m., do you know where your children are? Almost five years ago, I knew exactly where my child was. My three-month-old newborn son, Micah, was rocking in my arms, sawing logs. Yet as peacefully as he was sleeping, I could not have been more wrecked at that moment. You see, postpartum depression had wreaked havoc with our family. Earlier that day, um, I got a call while I was at work, a brand new job. I'd been there less than a week. I got a call from my mom informing me that my wife was in the emergency room being admitted to the psychiatric ward of Northwest Medical for postpartum depression. She was dealing with very severe depression, suicidal thoughts, and the scariest part of all is how to plan to actually carry it out. I didn't have any paid time off accrued, but that didn't stop me from hopping in my car and yelling at my boss on my way out the door of, I've got to go, my wife needs me. Now, I was working in Salem Springs, so it was about 45 minutes from where the hospital was. By the time I got there, she'd already been admitted and taken back. And I stood on the other side of this military-grade door where they were preventing me from going back and seeing my wife. They told me, you cannot go see her or talk to her until the next day during visiting hours. My mom was waiting there for me with my newborn son, Micah, and she handed him to me. And he was so blissfully oblivious to what was going on around him. As I held him, as I looked at him, he, he was at peace. It was the exact opposite of what was going on inside of me. I had fear. I had anger. I was, had this storm of emotions going on inside me at this time. Yet, as I sta stared there, stood there staring at that door, just hoping with my mind I could will it open so I could get back to my wife, I looked down at my son and this flood of helplessness and of fear just overcame me. She spent three days in the psychiatric ward and got some help. Um, but those three days I spent at home with my son experiencing a deeper darkness than I knew existed and asking questions about things that I once thought were unquestionable. I was asking questions that were rocking my world, my faith, the way I thought about God, the way I thought about myself, the way I thought about circumstances. I began asking questions like, is God really good? I'd never thought that before, but is God really good? Because if he is, why is my wife still in this dark place? Why has he not rescued her from her despair? I started asking questions like, is God real? Because I'm crying out and I don't feel like he's hearing me. I don't feel like he's doing what I need him to do. So if he's not hearing me, is he even there? And then the scariest question of all is, if he's real, 
do I really want to follow a God like this? One who seemingly leaves us in this dark place that has not answered my prayers of rescue, of salvation, of redemption from this postpartum depression that it wasn't just something that came upon us out of the blue. It had been building up for a period of time up to this point. Now, I don't know about you all, but I know that many of us ask questions like that at some point. If that's you, if you're wrestling with those questions right now, or if you ever have in the past, today is for you. Today's text is for you. If you have not, I can almost guarantee you life is going to throw you a curveball at some point. It's going to cause you to question things you once thought were so solid that they couldn't be questioned, that they were just solid truth. This text is for all of us, because at some point, we're all going to ask hard questions. Today, we encounter three crises of faith in our text that lead people to ask incredibly hard questions of Jesus. Let's take a look at what he has to say, but before we do, let's pray. Father God, um, you are good. We love you. Soften our hearts to hear um, what you have to say today, God. Pray that you would just prepare us for um, an encounter with Jesus that is both comforting and scary at the same time. Father God, we need you to speak to us today. We just open up our lives to you, our hearts, our minds, our souls, our eyes, God. Love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. So today's text is Luke 7, 18 through 35. Um, Start in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Okay, we have to stop here because there's a lot to unpack in this text. To truly understand what's going on here, we need to understand who John is. Because this question he's asking seems simple enough, but it's an oddly unique question to be coming from him. You see, John the Baptist, as many of you know, was Jesus' cousin. At the time of Jesus' birth and John's birth, angels came proclaiming um, these prophecies, these things that were going to happen as a result of these two Um, babies' births and and what they were going to do with their lives. Being Jesus' cousin, having these things things proclaimed over him before his birth, he and Jesus probably grew up together at family gatherings. And as Mary and Elizabeth shared these stories about their two sons, they probably sat in the corner, just hands in their faces, thinking, oh, mom, Oh, oh, Aunt Mary, oh, Aunt Elizabeth, stop. We've heard this a million times before. Not only that, but as John grew up with Jesus, he came into his own. He became a prophet. In the next portion of this passage, Jesus says he's even more than a prophet. But um, 
as he was a prophet, he was out in the desert. He spent years being this kind of wacko weirdo dressed in you know, soft camel's clothing and he ate bugs. Um, you know, he, he, he spent a while out there doing these things, baptizing people, speaking this message of repentance, a baptism of repentance. And earlier on in, in the story, Jesus comes out into the desert to John, and John baptizes Jesus. And what happens when he baptizes Jesus? He's there. The voice of God speaks and says, this is my son. The spirit of God falls like a dove upon him. And there can be no doubt that Jesus, at this point, there's something special about him. He's not just another man. He's not just another prophet or a good teacher. But this might just be the one. This has to be the one with, with the way God is, is showing him this. So it's with this background that John asked this very strange question. Why in the world would he be asking, Jesus, are you the one who's to come? Or should we wait for another? Because to me, if I look at this, I think if there's any person in this day and age, in this time, who should know that Jesus is the one who's to come, I feel like it should be John. He should be the chief amongst them. And there should be no doubt in his mind. I mean, for crying out loud, he heard an audible voice of God. He saw the Spirit descending. He's heard the prophecies. He's seen Jesus living it out, walking it out. He knows what happened at their births. So why is he doubting? To understand that, we have to know where he's at. See, at this time, John is no longer out in the desert. He's no longer a free man speaking the message that God has given him, but he's confined in this tiny little prison cell. And everything that he's known, everything that was comfortable to him, has been taken away. He's in Herod's custody, fearing most likely every day when he wakes up, is this the last time I'm going to wake up? Is this my last day on earth? At the same time, he, like many others, is probably thinking of the Messiah, the one who is to come, as possibly a, a militarist, militaristic political leader who's going to come and overthrow the government. He's in this cell. He's thinking, all right, Jesus, okay, if you're the Messiah, as we think you're supposed to be, if you're this militaristic leader, you know, we got this oppressive government. I've got this king breathing down the back of my neck, and I am scared for my life. If you're going to do this thing, if you're really the one, all right, I'm in this jail cell. Let's, let's get this ball rolling, man. I want out. He knows the prophecies. He knows what Isaiah has said of how he, the coming one, the Messiah, will set the captives free. And in his mind, I think he's coming to, uh, at this from a mindset of, I need to be set free. I'm in jail. I can't get out. Jesus, I'm pretty sure you're the one, but I'm still here. It's from that point, that place. That's why he has to send his disciples, because he can't go himself to Jesus. It's not just a question of, are you the one? But it's a plea. You can almost hear it in his voice. Are you the one, Jesus? Are you the one, or do I need to look for another? Because I need a rescuer today. And I'm scared that maybe everything I've done, my, my hope in you has been in vain. Because if you're not the one, I'd need to look for another. I've got to find the one who is the one because I need help today, right now. Help me. 
So what does Jesus do? You know, I, I think about what Jesus' response could have been. He could have very easily said, John, you know, you were there. You heard God speak. You saw the Spirit fall on me. You've known the prophecies growing up. You know the scriptures. You know that I'm the one. Come on, man. Get a grip. But instead, he acts first. <laughs> he starts healing people. He heals them, of, it says, of all kinds of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. The blind begin to see. And I mean, you can just picture the scene. There's people who are just struggling, hurting. They've been this way their whole life. And Jesus is just saying, yeah, you see, you're free from that evil spirit. You're no longer plagued by that thing. And they're just jumping up with joy. You can just see it. I mean, how amazing must that place have been? And then he responds. He turns to the disciples of John. And he says, go tell them what you're seeing. These things I'm doing, the words that Jesus quotes, those are words directly from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, where he is prophesying hundreds and hundreds of years beforehand, this is what the Messiah is going to look like. John would know that. In getting this response, he's going to know that. But there's one interesting point about his response. Jesus, in dealing with John and answering this crisis of faith that he's within, these hard questions, this fear, this doubt that John's bringing to the table, he leaves off the part about liberating the captives. That very, those very words are a part of these scriptures that he is quoting, these things that he is walking out. And this crisis that John is in is this fear, this doubt of, I need to be set free. Yet Jesus, for some reason, doesn't include that in his answer. After he chooses not to include that, he then goes on to say, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What do we do with that? What does John do with that? That's my real question. John reaches out to Jesus with fear, with doubt, with a hard question, with not knowing the answer and being terrified. Jesus then responds in a way that probably wasn't exactly how John had hoped he would respond. Yes, he's confirming, I am the one who is to come. I am the Messiah. John would have seen that. He would have understood exactly what he was saying. But he also chooses to leave out the one thing that John is probably hoping for most from the Messiah. In all truth, we don't know exactly how John responds. It doesn't ever tell us in the text. But I think Jesus knows that there's going to be a temptation to become offended by this. Jesus is saying, I'm the one. John gets the response, but you didn't tell me you were setting me free. I didn't hear you say, I'm on my way to where you're at. Y'all, he wants out of jail. What does it mean to not respond with offense? Let's think about this in John's case. For John, the offense might look like, okay, God, okay, Jesus, that's great and all, but what about me? That's great that you're fulfilling these things. I mean, good for you, bravo, but I'm still in jail. Come on, man, what about me? 
This doesn't align with, with my way of thinking. This doesn't align with my expectations. An offense for him could very easily look like rejecting Jesus because he's not meeting his exact needs, his exact expectations, falling within the lines of what he expects Jesus to be, the Messiah to be. I think that's what Jesus is warning us against here, what he's warning John against. Beware the offense, John. I am the one, but it's not what you think it should look like. I'm working on your behalf. I promise you, I'm doing the things that need to be done to save the world. I am working on behalf of all people, past, present, and future. You need to see that, but beware that spirit of offense that's going to keep you from seeing that. That fear of me, 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 as my four-year-old son likes to say. Where we miss the things of God because we're so obsessed with the self and the expectations that we put upon him. Now, I don't know how he responded. I can only hope he responded to that offense. But what does it look like when we do respond with offense? What, what, what about the rest of the people around him? The, the rest of this passage uh, um, talks about to that. Um, so we pick up again in, in verse 24. Um, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? So what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he is a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So what do we see here? Jesus turns his attention from the disciples of John. And he turns to the crowds that are surrounding him. Because he knows this isn't just a crisis that John is dealing with. This isn't just a question that John is facing. As John Ray alluded to last week, with these two healings, these two raising from the dead instances of the centurion's servant and the widow's son, you start, you're starting to see that the crowds, the people, are beginning to sort of grasp, oh, Maybe this Jesus isn't just a great teacher. Maybe he's something more than that. But what? What is he? Here we have Jesus turning to the people and addressing that head on. He knows they just heard what he said. They were just there to see what he did. They're seeing these prophecies from Isaiah lived out before their very eyes. 
Yet he turns his attention back to John, saying, what did you go out to see? Why did you go out to the desert? I mean, surely you didn't just go out to see this crazy man doing all these things, eating weird food, dressed in strange clothing. He says, no. John is a man, a prophet, but more so than that. This is the one of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He then goes on to tell you, I tell you none among women is greater than John. You see, in this passage, the presence of John and Jesus create a crisis for the people. Simply their presence around them, their existence, is causing questions to be raised. Is the one among us? Is the Messiah among us? Who is John? Who is Jesus? What's happening here? He then goes on to allude to to the people of this generation being like children in the marketplace. We played a flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Many scholars think that um, this, this saying is a representative of who John and Jesus were. On the one hand, you have John, a man out in the desert repenting, or preaching a message of repentance, of death to self, of turn from your ways to God, lay down the things that you've held dear, the th- your sins, your everything, turn towards God. It's a message of repentance. It's a death in a way. That's exactly what baptism represents. And then we have Jesus playing the flute. He's coming, preaching a message of life, of something greater than what we see here, of a wedding feast that is to come of a time when there will be no more crying, no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrows. I think it's very intentional what Jesus is doing here in paralleling himself with John. He is not just saying, oh yeah, John was a great prophet, but he's saying the message of John is critical to the message of who I am. If you're to understand me, if you're to answer this question, this crisis for yourself, of are you the one who is to come, you have to first understand John's message. Alex Cornett um, made the comments in our teaching team this week of how you can't short-circuit your way around to the wedding feast, that John's message is critical. We have to first go to the funeral. We have to first die to ourselves to lay down our, our lives, to lay down our past sins of, of everything that we bring to the table. Once we do that, then we can enter into the wedding feast. And then Jesus goes on to say, but you don't get it. He says, because you see John the Baptist, you hear his message. You look at him and you say, he's got a demon. He's a wacko. He's a crazy. We should just write him off. The Pharisees and lawyers, he is disrupting their comfortable life. And then they look at Jesus over here on this other extreme, on this side of the table. And they say, no, that's not right either. That, that dude is just, uh, he's a drunkard. He's a glutton. All he wants to do is party. 
His message isn't right. He's actively going against our laws. Last week we saw him, whenever he healed the widow's son, he could heal from a distance. He just proved it in the miracle before that. What does he do? He goes up and touches the dead boy. Something that was against the law at the time. Something that made you unclean. We see, saw it the week before with the Sabbath. As Jesus is healing on the Sabbath, doing work, as the Pharisees say, on a day when you're not supposed to do work. And what do the, the Pharisees and lawyers say? Instead of seeing what he just did, instead of seeing the fact that there's, this is someone among us who we've never seen before. We've never seen someone like this. We've never seen people raised from the dead. We've never seen these gold star miracles, as John Ray calls them. And they write him off because he's also making their life uncomfortable. He's challenging their status quo. The crisis these people are dealing with is the same as what John is dealing with. How they respond, we see a little bit of that in the text. We see that some of the people who had accepted that baptism of repentance called Jesus just. They heard his message. They said, yeah, that's right. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, it says, rejected God's purposes. Why? Is it because they were blind? No, they could see. It's because of how they were asking the question, I believe. Instead of coming at it with genuine curiosity, Instead of bringing their doubts and fears to the table, they dug themselves into a trench with this defensive posture. And they said, no, we are defending our ground. Jesus, you are messing with how we live. You are messing with how we believe, with how we think salvation and self-righteousness should happen. We uphold these laws. We built our whole life around this way of living, this way of thinking. And we're not giving up that ground. Uh-uh, no way. So their question of who he is, when they ask that to themselves, I don't think it's from a place of wanting to truly understand, to truly know him. They bring their presuppositions to the table, and they say, our way is the right way. Godly living looks like us, not Jesus, not John, us. So when they ask the question, it's a matter of trying to prove him wrong rather than trying to understand who he is. So this leads us to our third crisis. On the one hand, we've got John, truly doubting, truly fearing, truly not understanding what's going on, just wanting Jesus to speak into his life. He may not have looked the way he thought it was going to look. He may not have answered the way he thought he was going to answer, but he truly wanted to know. On the other hand, we've got the crowds, second crisis that we look at. And some respond in different ways. The way Jesus responds to them is different than how he responds to John. But the third crisis is us, the reader. So what do we do with this? Where do we land? First of all, I think we all have to wrestle with the same question. Who is Jesus? Who is God? What do we do with him? 
You know, some of us have already answered that that question for ourselves. Some of us are trying to answer it again because our world just got rocked. Our career just got altered, cut short. Chronic illness has hit us. Who we thought Jesus was and how he interacted with us may have changed. Or at least we may deem it to have changed. It may be a loss. Whatever your curveball is, we may be asking these same questions again. I think from these two other crises, we can learn a great deal about what to do with hard questions when they arise and how to ask them. As we walk with God, as I mentioned, hard questions will arise. Maybe it's that same question. Who is Jesus? Who is he in this season, in this circumstance, in this place in my life where everything I thought I knew got flipped on its head? It may be questions of, is God really good? I believe he's real. Is he good? It may be a question of beginning to ask Is he really real? Regardless, hard questions are inevitable. Our walk with Jesus has to begin with a hard question. Who is he? What does it mean to me? What am I going to do about it? But that's not going to be the last hard question you're going to be thrown. So when they arise, what do we do with it? Well, you know, some schools of thought tell us, well, doubting is just a lack of faith. So suppress it. Pretend like it's not there. Fake it till you make it. Fake that faith until you make it. And just pretend like those questions aren't there. Stuff them down. I know I've been guilty of that at times. I've thought I shouldn't be asking these questions. This is wrong for me to ask these questions. This is wrong for me to have anger and fear and doubt about these things. There have been times when I have lifted up a question to God and thought, I am for sure going to be struck down dead right here and now with a bolt of lightning. I mean, truly scared of that. Perhaps we try to explain them away. We grab the latest cliche of the day, some random verse that someone throws at us, and we say, oh, I shouldn't X, Y, Z. I shouldn't have these fears. Oh, I, you know, whatever it may be. We oversimplify. We we like to say, well, God's going to do something good with this. You know, Romans 8, 28, he is. He works for the good of all who love him, um, those things. But that doesn't make the hard things any less hard. That doesn't make the bad things any less bad. When we try to oversimplify and explain away these things, oftentimes what we're doing is we're invalidating those fears, those questions. And we're saying, no, I I, I can't really deal with that right now, so I'm going to throw some blanket statement at it over the wall in hopes that that solves it. Or We can admit that we have questions. We can admit that we don't know everything. We can admit that a situation is incredibly hard. Like John, we can admit, I need a rescuer today. 
Herod is threatening my life, and I don't know what to do about it. I'm terrified. And we can bring it before God. Doubt, fear, anger, angst, anxiety, all of it. We can bring it before him. See, because I believe hard questions shouldn't be suppressed, shouldn't be ignored, shouldn't be explained away, but need to be tackled head on with honesty and with humility. Now, don't hear me wrong, because these prayers are usually not pretty. They're not things that can be wrapped up with a nice little bow and slapped on a mug and sold in a Christian bookstore. When something rocks your world, you're going to cry out, scream out, and do whatever you have to to get answers. At least that's going to be what you're going to want to do. There's going to be so much emotion there, so much going on. It's going to feel like a storm inside of you. You know what? That's okay. We ought some think whenever we pray to God, it has to be something gentle. It has to be something well-prepared, well-spoken, well-said. But we're not coming to God with honesty in those moments whenever that's our response. Why? Why do we like to hide those things? It took me a long time to feel like I could actually bring my emotions before God. A long time. So I felt like I had to present myself in a way that would be pleasing to him, that he would approve of me with my prayers. He would approve of me with how I acted and with how I felt. And it was dishonest. Why do we do that? Is it because we're afraid that if we bring these things before him, that he's too weak, that he's going to crumble, that he's not going to be able to handle it? Is it because we're afraid that he is too wrathful, too mean, too spiteful, and he's just going to hear it and say, nope, don't want to hear it. Get over yourself. Why? But look at how he responds to John. He doesn't tell him to keep quiet. He doesn't tell him that's a stupid question. Instead, he does exactly what John needs. He walks out these scriptures that John knows full well. He does the thing that John needs to see and hear to know that he is the one. When he turns to the people, what does he do? He doesn't say, y'all should know this already. He responds to them in a way to help them understand. He knows they can't understand on their own. They're not God. Nor can we when hard questions come up. You see, about six months ago was one of those moments where I thought I was going to be struck down. I really did. My wife, I'd love to say, that after that postpartum depression and getting out of there for three days, that it just got a whole lot better. It didn't. It did for a time. Then we had another son. 
and postpartum depression reared its ugly head again. And you know what? It hasn't fully gone away, I don't think. It may not be postpartum depression, but she has been dealing with chronic illness with so many health issues since that point. A few months ago, I, I, I took that to God. I said, God, I can't do this anymore. This isn't okay. I've been praying for years. Years, God, to take this away, to make this better. And I screamed out at him in our bedroom. I was so mad, so angry, so scared, and so desperate to have him just say, yes, I'm going to fix it. Yes, I hear you. It's anything. I wanted some comfort. And after asking him that, after screaming out, I really thought I was done. My kids were asleep. Jane was in the other room, and I thought they're never going to see me again. I'm done. I've, I've crossed that line with God, and I'm not coming back. You know what his response was? It was comfort. I, I felt in that moment, his response to me was, I hear you, Andrew. I'm with you. You're not alone in this. And your questions are not too scary for me. Your emotions are not too rough, too hard, too evil, too bad for me to handle. I'm with you. You're not alone. I had a sense of peace come over me that I hadn't felt in years at that point. Because God didn't abandon me. I didn't scare him off. He heard me. He heard my cry. He heard my, my questions, my pleas for help. That's the second portion of that, to ask with humility. Yes, be honest. But we have to be humble too. If we're coming at it from a place of yelling at God and telling him, you should be doing this, this and trying to defend our ground, make ourselves right, and God wrong. We're missing something critical. He says in Scripture, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. We don't always have the answers that we want. God, God does not always respond the way we want him to respond. We, we do not always know what's best for us. Take John, for instance. John's screaming out, saying, God, help me. I'm in jail. Help me, help me today. Just tell me you're the one. He's bringing his presuppositions, his fears, everything to the table. There's no entrenchment. There's no trying to defend my ground and prove I'm right and you're wrong, God. Honesty and humility, knowing that he doesn't have the answers. And he just needs a God to hear him, to understand him. Which brings up the third point about hard questions. We have to understand 
that our hard questions might not elicit the response we expect from God. Yet they will deepen our relationship with him if we can avoid offense. Again, this comes back to our posture. Are we coming at it from a posture of defense? Or with open arms and a plea for help? A plea for him to speak? A plea for understanding when we don't have it? You know what I'd love to say today? That after I yelled at God, after he brought me comfort, everything changed. That everything was good. We were on a nice, fast track to health, wealth, and prosperity. We're not. We're still struggling with it. I still wrestle with these questions. You probably wrestle with questions yourself. If there's anything I want you to walk away with today, anything at all, It's that God hears you. God does not abandon us. Hard questions will arise. Don't suppress them. Don't run from them. Don't try to explain them away. Bring them before a God who understands. And let him speak into that situation. He may not say what you expect him to say. He may not say what you originally hoped for him to say but his response will be so uniquely personal to you, to your situation. He's worthy of trusting with our hard questions. He's good enough to trust with our hard questions. He's loving enough. He's kind enough. He's patient enough. He's strong enough. He's big enough. Let him carry the weight As we transition into um, a time of communion, I'll ask the worship team to come on back up. We, uh, we're going to take communion together. You know, this table, the bread, the juice, it's open to all. I want to invite you to come up and take communion with us this morning. And as you take that bread, as you take that juice, we need to hold it this morning and remember that this is what our God has done for us. He has taken the weight of everything, past, present, and future of our lives, our questions, our fears, our doubts, our sins, everything about us that is flawed, everything about us that we dislike about ourselves, and that we, we sometimes hate ourselves for feeling these things, asking these questions. He took these things upon himself, knowing full well the weight of those questions, those angers, those fears. And when he was nailed to the cross, took him to the grave with him. He is a loving God. He's not overwhelmed by anything that we bring to him. Remember that as you eat and drink. And he then rose from the dead. He brought life. He brought hope. He brought peace. He brought encouragement. He brought everything we need to those hard places in our lives. And take comfort and peace in that.